from Romans 5, 12, 21. I'm just going to give you a moment to open your Bibles on page 1, 130. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the, Lord was, the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like, tres like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment follows, followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people for just as just for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase but where sin increased Grace increased all the more, so that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Karen. Very well read. got your Bibles there, do keep them open to Romans 5. I've called today the uh, tale of two Adams, story of original sin along with God's amazing grace. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. At times it is wonderful, at times it's confronting and Lord, as we come to this passage uh, with the complexities in it, I pray that you'd give us a clarity of thought, but also just convict our hearts and warm our hearts as we understand who we are 
and importantly, your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. We pray, amen. Now, um, start by saying, I don't know if you read your Bible every day, I would encourage you to do that. Um, one of the things that I think is so vital in the Christian life is to just pick our Bibles up and read them every day. And the reason for that is, it's not just a book about God, though it is that, it's actually God's Word to us. And when we read it, God is going to speak to us. And my own experience is, um, and I try and just read through systematically Old Testament, New Testament, um, there's some mornings and you pick up stuff and you think, that's just amazing, it's so uplifting, uh, it's so marvellous. But there's other passages that you read and they're quite confronting. Um, they kind of stop you in your tracks. And there's no doubt, I think, when I think about this passage, uh, it's one that kind of stops you in your tracks. And it's interesting, at 8 o'clock when we had the Bible reading, John Appleby got up to read, and John just said, I'm going to read a little bit slower because um, it's quite confounding, um, this passage. And um, is that the word he used, Scott? It was convoluted, that's right. <laughs> and there is a real sense I could understand totally what he was saying, that there, it does kind of feel a bit convoluted. And when I was reading this, and I, my confession is I did far too much reading about this, not enough writing about it because I was so intrigued by the passage. Um, three words really came to me in terms of thinking about this passage um, that we're going to look at. Uh, first is, it is sobering and we're going to look at why that is. But I want to say it's essential to understand this sobering reality that it's going to put forward to us. But it's also transforming when you get to the end of it and you understand what God has done in Christ. And so buckle in, you're going to need your brains on today uh, because there is a sobering reality to the passage that is essential to understand but when you grasp what the full message is, it actually can transform you. And so um, three things I wanted to go through, the original sin, secondly a tale of two Adams and thirdly the reign of grace. And for those who are new with us, uh, we're on our way through Romans um, and that's why we're stopping at this point. Uh, it's always good to just preach through the Bible. It forces you to preach on passages that you might not normally preach on, this no doubt being one of them. Um, but what we've seen so far is the universal nature of sin, chapters 1 to 3, God's amazing salvation in Christ, chapter 3 at the end, that we take hold of by faith, chapter 4, and when you take hold of God's promises in Christ by faith, you actually experience His love as He sheds that into your hearts and it is incredibly powerful powerful in your life to transform you it seems like he takes a backward step though when you come to this passage because there's a real sense of which in a very detailed way he dealt with the human condition of sin and rebelling against God in the most extensive way in chapters one to three and yet it's almost like he said oh there's something I forgot to mention um, and he wants to come back to look at sin. And sin is one of those topics that I think is difficult to talk about. Um, it's not popular in our culture for obvious reasons. And yet it's so important to understand. It's sobering but essential. And so let's just think about this first verse, number 12. Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Now, that is a famous verse in Christian theology. And I'm going to start with that because it's about the original sin. And if you look up any Christian theological tomb, 
um, or a dictionary article and you look up original sin, you'll always see this verse in the brackets as a justification for what is often taught, which is original sin. And I want to explain what that means. This is the verse that it looks to. And there's a number of things to pick out from the verse. Firstly, um, when we think about what it says, and if my clicker will go, can you just click that ahead, please, Lachlan? The original sin. Adam was a real person. And it's worth starting there. Now, in verse 12, it talked about one man. Now, we see in verse 14 that that one man is Adam. And I do want to note that um, when you're looking at Adam and you read the account in Genesis, there's no doubt that there is a very prosaic presentation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3. It's poetical, prosaic language used. Don't let that confuse you to think that Adam is not a real person. Because when you get to the New Testament, it's very clear, the New Testament writers say, this person was real. And I don't want to get bogged down in historical issues, only to say, I do believe that there is a long creation over millions of years in terms of thinking about the origins of the earth. But I also believe Adam and Eve were created beings who had the Spirit of God breathed into them by God very late in the peace. And they are real people who existed in real time within our history. Now, if you've got questions about evolution, those things, very happy to talk to you afterwards. I don't want to get bogged down here. Only to note that what we're talking about is a real person. There were real decisions made in what is described as the Garden of Eden. They had a real job to do, which was to, under God, extend the rule of God in the world, which is a hint that though the world was good, there was work to do, and they fell. And that's my second point. It's through this real person, Adam and Eve, that sin entered the world. That's what it says, just as sin entered the world through one man. And in thinking about that, um, it's worth noting, Eve is often spoken, well not often, but on a number of occasions spoken as um, significant in terms of the sin that took place. Here it's Adam is the one that is picked out. And he is the one who is deemed to be responsible for sin entering the world. And it's not that Eve wasn't because she is referred to on a number of occasions. I take it it's because um, he is the one as head in the relationship that the responsibility ultimately came back to him. The thing to note though, prior to the rebellion of both Adam and Eve, sin did not exist. They were in this perfect community together with God. They walked with him. And importantly, there was no shame or fear or guilt in the experience of humanity that was Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a perfect fellowship that they had and existed under God between them. But what happened was, through the actions of Adam and Eve, and Adam is here, uh, the one who is um, held up as being responsible, sin enters the world. And what happens is, death comes as a result of this sin. Because of the one man, death enters the world. Let me read verse 12 again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Adam and Eve were graciously 
looked after by God and the clothing is symbolic of the fact that he provides for them but yet it came with a judgment that the work they would do would be toilsome and also that death would come and that is exactly what takes place and ever since then death has reigned in the world in the sense that no one can escape it now there are two people aside from the Lord Jesus who did not die that is Enoch and Elijah they were taken to be with God but everyone else all of us included will die have died and the thing to note is the effects of this sin and the entrance of death are universal you cannot escape it to quote verse 12 death came to all people because all sinned all of us in the world and what it's saying is that through all of history all of us are connected to Adam inescapably you could say and through that connection we inherit both guilt and judgment we're separated from God and that is the doctrine of original sin that we are born this way we are born naturally not wanting to follow God but we naturally want to go our own way we're built we're born outside of relationship with God naturally now the great example of this I take it is children and any parent will know the experience of, child, of raising kids is they do not need to teach their kids to sin <laughs> they do not need to teach their kids to say no <laughs> they learn it in a way that is just so remarkable and it comes to them so quickly <laughs> the defiance at such a young age and you see there the practical outworking of what Paul is talking about here all of a sin we've inherited this guilt and this fallen nature and Paul is not saying that humans all die because we are like Adam that is we sin like him rather he's saying we die because we are in him that's what that verse is saying we are in Adam and so when he sinned in some way he represented us and we are in him and so we are part of that rebellion now if I can give you an example from um, World War II on the 7th of uh, December sorry it was the 7th sorry the 8th of December 1941 for our history buffs amongst us you may know that Curtin the sitting Prime Minister declared war on Japan and that was if I can say in solidarity with our American brothers and sisters because the day before was Pearl Harbor and America declared war on the Japanese nation at that point they sat outside of the war and then we also joined uh, being at war with Japan now what happened was in Australia anyone who was of Japanese descent and there were 4,000 of them were rounded up and they were put into what are called internment camps and there's a picture of one it was in South Australia in 1941 and I was reading about it uh, in preparation for the message and there was a 12 year old Japanese boy he actually was born here in Darwin and so considered himself in many ways to have Japanese origin but Australian but because of his national background and his father who'd emigrated from Japan out here he was just swept up and taken to the internment camp 
they weren't prisoners of war in the sense that they were soldiers, but they were the equivalent of that as civilians. Now, why did we put them in there? Because it didn't matter whether you agreed with the Japanese emperor of the day, you were now considered to be an enemy of Australia and America. And they put them into these camps, rightly or wrongly. That's what took place. And it was because they were Japanese. And you see, who are we? We are people who are in Adam. You see, the ancient and biblical understanding is that a person is not what he or she is simply through their personal choices. They become what they are through their connection to Adam. He is our, for want of a better word, head. And we are under him. And you cannot escape it. Try that you might. It's impossible. And what I mean by that is, we've got this nature that always wants to do its own thing separate from God. It's just who we are. Inescapable. And it's a sobering reality. And Paul goes on to say this um, in verse 13 and 14. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even though those who did sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. And what he's saying here, it's not that there was no sin prior to the law of Moses coming, and the law, what it did was revealed what was right and wrong. He's saying, no, rather, there just wasn't awareness of the right and wrong that they were doing. They didn't have the law to instruct them, that, but yet they were still sinning. Nevertheless, death still reigned. In other words, they were doing the wrong thing. Death, the judgment of God, still reigned. They might, have not, not, they might not have knowingly sinned by breaking commands given by God, but yet they still sinned, and as a result, death continued to rule. That's what those verses are saying. And the same is true today. People may not be aware of God's standards, but that doesn't mean that we're not sinning. We could put it this way. Disease and death reign just as much over nice people as over cruel people. Just as much over ignorant people as it is instructed people. Just as much over infants who have not disobeyed deliberately as over adults who have. Why? Because we're all affected by the sin of Adam that we continue to propagate. Well, that's the first point, the original sin. And it is a sobering truth to take hold of. I'll come back to that. Secondly, a tale of two Adams. I'm not going to spend as much time here. And uh, John Appleby, who described this passage as being slightly convoluted, I think in particular is reflecting on this um, parallelism between Adam and between Christ. And in the verses that follow, in verses 15 through to 19, uh, what Paul does is compare and contrast Adam and his impact on the world and Jesus and his impact on the world. And both Adam and Jesus stand for and represent a group of people. And what he is saying is you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. What we are naturally born into is belonging to Adam. We are in him by birth. 
But by faith, taking hold of God's promises, we can attach ourselves to Christ and being in Him. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass, the gift being from Jesus, the trespass being what Adam did. This is verse 15, for if the many die by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So what Jesus brings is a gift, what Adam did was a trespass. The trespass led to death, what Jesus gives leads to life. Adam's bring death, Jesus brings grace. That's the contrast. Verse 16, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. In other words, when you look at what Adam did compared to uh, Jesus, there is no comparison. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought uh, brought justification. One brings death, one brings relationship with God. One cuts you off from God, one brings you to God. Verse 18, consequently, in other words, as a summary, just as one trespass, that's from Adam, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Now the key is in verse 19, it's through this one man's obedience. This is Jesus. For just as through the obedience of one man, the many were made sinners, Adam, I mean he just keeps repeating it, you haven't got it, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now I want to stop and just think about what he's saying here about what Jesus has done. Um, We will rightly and often, in thinking about what God has done for us in Christ, hone in on the cross and the death of Christ for us, because that's where our sin is paid for. We will also, with great joy, hone in on the resurrection of Jesus because that's where death is overcome. What we often forget, though, is his life. Now, you think about your lives. I'll think about mine. Um, I cannot obey God properly. And I emphasise cannot. I'm just unable to. That's the sobering reality we're talking about here. Because I'm fatally flawed. I've inherited Adam's nature. Guilty. Flawed. There is one person, though, who was born into this world who had a different nature. That was not flawed. And who fully obeyed his father. That's Jesus. And that's what verse 19 is reflecting on. For just as through the obedience of the one man, the many were made, um, the many were made sinners, so also through, sorry, for just as through the disobedience of the one, many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And Jesus lived this perfect life. And what is profound is, he gives us that life in the sense that he credits it to us. Now, I was talking to... um, someone this week, about frequent flyer points. And they were crediting them to their children. (laughs) Very gracious of them. And you could rightly say, the children did not earn them. (laughs) The father earned them through his business activities and flying around. But the kids get the credit for it, okay? So when they front up to get their ticket, they're not paying for it. 
They've been credited frequent flyer points. It's theirs. Good on Dad for doing that. Jesus has a perfect life. And he credits it to you. So that when you trust in him, that obedience is yours. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's credited to you, to your account. So that when God looks at you, what does he see? Well, he doesn't see my deep flaws. He sees a perfect obedience. You are perfect in God's sight when you are in Christ. It is profound. And that's what he's saying here. Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. You are credited his obedience. At the cross, grace overwhelms sin. Life triumphs over death. You're given his perfect life. And what does he do with our life? He takes it to the cross and pays the price for it. Great exchange. Which leads me to the reign of grace. Romans 5, 6, uh, sorry, I'll just jump ahead. The reign of grace, verse 21. Let me read from verse 20 and 21. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. In other words, there would be an awareness of sin. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, God continued to be gracious, is what Paul is saying. So that just as sin reigned in death, in other words, what's the impact of the power of sin in our life? It brings the judgment of death. So also, grace might reign, it might be in charge, how through righteousness, which is given to us through Christ, to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 18 times in Paul's letter to the Romans, he mentions that beautiful Christian word, grace. Five times in verses 12 to 21 of Romans 5, he mentions it. Five times. And grace is a, it's this beautiful word. It's God's undeserved favour and kindness to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his love to send his son for us. It's his son dying for our sins in our place. It's his mercy to forgive all of our sins, God's grace, both past, present and future. God's grace is his granting us eternal life on the basis of what Christ has done, not on our own merits. God's grace is experienced as he pours out his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we know we're loved. That's what we looked at last week. It's God's grace and his mercy that now rules us and changes us from the inside out. I want to stop now and just try and put all the parts together. I, I know it's a fairly complex passage. And I started by saying that this passage is both sobering, essential and transformative. Let's just think about why I think all of those ones. It is sobering. 
I'll speak about myself, not you guys. It tells me that there is a reality to my sin that I just can't escape. It's just who I am. I am deeply flawed and broken. That's who I am. And that's who we are. We struggle to believe God's goodness. We struggle to take hold of his gracious promises to us. We naturally want to look after ourselves, not others. And because of my links to Adam, it's completely inescapable. Adam was not just a bad example that we can unwittingly unfollow, like a friend on Facebook. (laughs) He is our head who we're completely affected by and our very nature has been changed. And you see, this is why it's so essential to hold on to this. The doctrine of original sin puts us all on the same level. And there's no doubt that this doctrine and the understanding of the gospel that flows from it is just year by year being slowly eroded in our culture. And it's so important to actually retain the doctrine of sin. And it seems weird to talk about that in the sense that our culture needs to understand it's sinful. Because what the doctrine does is it humbles us. It helps us really, at a profound level, understand no one is better than anyone else. None of us. All of us are fatally flawed. There is no one person here in this room who is better than any other person here in this room. And importantly, and this is so important for our ministry in the world, we are not better than anyone else outside of this building. We are as fatally flawed as every other human being. Irregardless of race, culture, class, status, wealth, I am not better, you are not better than anyone else. And why is it so essential to hold on to? Because we are forgetting that. We're forgetting it culturally and we're forgetting it in the church. And it's so easy in the church because we have a revelation from God to start thinking that we're better than people. And to look down on people. Let me read to you what a convert as an adult, and he's a great writer, and his name is Francis Buffett, Spufford, he's from the UK, and he wrote this great book, and I love the title, How Despite Everything, Christianity Can Actually Make Surprising Emotional Sense. It's a great title. He says, so of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, the, the shiny, happy, squeaky, clean people. He's quoting a line from a song there. And excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive people. That's not Christianity. For the very simple reason, there aren't any good people. (laughs) 
And then he says this, the religion, that's Christianity, certainly can slip into being a club or a cosy affinity group or a wall against the world, which absolutely it has become on different occasions. But it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be, and I love this, is a league of the guilty. Not guilty all of the same things, or in the same way, or in the same degree, but enough of us to recognise each other. That's who the church is, the league of the guilty. Whenever we as Christians, or as a church, think we are morally superior, we have lost our doctrine of sin. And the doctrine of original sin. And it happens all too easily. But I'll tell you another mark of the way our culture is losing the doctrine of sin, and it's what I want to call the rise of blame culture and cancel culture. And there's no doubt that is something that is marking our current cultural moment. And I've spoken to a few people about this this week, and you just see it in the media every day. I see it in the way people behave. I see it in the way relationships are breaking down. I see it from our leaders and politicians who constantly blame others. I see it in woke thinking. I see it in right-wing thinking. I see it in left-wing thinking. That what people are doing is blaming others for the issues in this world while never taking responsibility for themselves. Do you get it? This is what I keep observing. Everyone else is the problem. Be it from the left or the right or the centre. And it's, I think, deep down, this erosion of the doctrine of original sin that completely humbles you and makes you see, I am the problem. And that's not to say there are not other problems out there, but it will transform how you see the problem and relate to other people. You will come at them with humility and deep respect because you know that you are part of the problem. And yet you just see this increasing rise of blame and cancel culture. I see it in marriages that are breaking down where people just blame the other and there is no sense of personal responsibility. And why is it happening? Well, there's numbers of reasons, but deep down, it's because we've lost our doctrine of sin. And let me say, you will never understand the gospel if you do not understand the doctrine of sin. You will never experience great joy in the gospel if you do not understand the doctrine of sin. And, uh, until you come to that point of realizing how broken you are, you will not be filled with wonder at what God has done for you. It's only when you realize the blackness of the heart, the natural inclination away, and that you hear God calling you to Him and to just trust in what Christ has done by his grace and mercy and love. And you see, that's why this doctrine is so transforming, because it enables you to see 
the wonder of his grace. And you'll only see the starkness and beauty and power of his grace when you see the depth of your own sin. And friends, that's why verse 21 is so powerful and I want to finish it on. So just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's stop and pray. Father, it is a confounding and in many ways convoluted passage where Paul is wrestling with these deep truths. But Father, help us to take hold of what he's saying that we were once in Adam, that our natures are marked by that sin. But Lord, fill our hearts with faith and trust in what you have done for us in Christ to take hold of those promises of salvation. And may you fill us with wonder and transform us from the inside out so that we can be your people who, with humility and respect, witness to your love, care for people around us and serve this world. In Jesus' name, amen.